Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting live on digital delay from the podcast New York Studios. It's another all-new Dueling Decades. The adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. I am Mark James, and this week we have for you a weak experience battle where all of our competitors' picks must fall within one calendar week. I'll be representing May 8th through the 14th of 1988 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, with the 90s, he's all that and a bag of microchips. Say hello to Man Crush. I'd say that would be accurate if I didn't have this booger lodged in the back of my nose. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I have uh, May 7th through the 13th of 1995, and it's a little odd because I haven't had the 90s in quite a while. So this is, it feels different. Also joining us on the panel in this week, he's shagging his wagon to the 70s. It's the professor, Drew Zachman. What's up, everybody? I am repping the 70s here. I have May 9th through the 15th of 1976. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. This week's guest judge is the uh, Emmy, a winning producer and best-selling author of Rock Bottom at the Renaissance, an emo kid's journey through falling in and out of love in and with New York City. All rise for Judge Mike Henneberger. Wow, thank you. Thanks for... Um... Thanks. Thanks for having me. And um, thanks for getting through that title all in one try. For, He's been practicing. For going, for going for it. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wildcard round. Remember, duelers, to review the show. Listen, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to our guest judge, Mike Henneberger, for the coin toss, which this week will be between Man Crush and Drew Zachman. You call it, Drew. Uh, I'll go. I always go tails. I'm going to stick with tails. Maybe one of these weeks will actually work out for me. All right, well, here's what I got. I didn't have anything great, so I got creative, and I took two rock bottom at the Renaissance buttons. These are the, the, here's the bottle of pills, which obviously is heads. And then for tails, I got the bottle of scotch. Oh, definitely going scotch. All right, here we go. And flip. It is pills. 
See? Oh, all right, Man Crush, <laughs> you won the coin toss, and you get to select our first category. All right, let's go hot products. Let's start off with hot products. Let's go uh, May 8th of 1995. And I, I know recently I've been talking a lot about products having legs, and I've been chastised for it, Drew and Dave. Uh, but this product right here, this isn't even something that's tangible. It's not even something that you can put your hands on. Yet this one has legs for days. And uh, by this point, 1995, I had already been on the internet for four years. And during those previous four years, this barely existed. So it's strange to think about like going on the internet and not seeing ads in your face at every turn. However, in 1995, it was strange for me to see ads on the internet because up until the mid nineties, unless you were on like AOL or prodigy or like one of those other services that had like a graphical user interface, mostly everything was text-based. So it was super rare to see an ad that is until these websites started popping up and selling banner space. Uh, so I came across this write up with several internet ad spaces that you could purchase uh, for the, here's one. I mean, for the mere price of $30,000 for 60 days, you can put a banner ad at the top of Wired Magazine's brand new Hot Wired, which was their uh, digital version of their magazine. And at the time, they, were, they had 100,000 digital subscribers and 250,000 visits per day. Uh, but if that one was too much for you, you could opt to throw a banner on ZDNet's Ziff.com, which of course now is ZDNet, which everybody uses. They go there for reviews and whatever. But uh, for anywhere between $10,000 and $25,000 per quarter, uh, I mean, which seems like a steal compared to Wired. Uh, so you get four months of ads for $25,000. I mean, sign me the fuck up, right? Uh, or uh, the other one that I found that was on here, how about uh, like this was the web browser choice in 1995. Of course, you had Internet Explorer, but the more popular one was Netscape Navigator in 1995. So you could put an ad on their homepage for $40,000 for three months. And this was like, I don't know if you guys remember this at the time, but like mid nineties, their portal page was, you can get like news or sports scores, stocks. That was kind of like your home. So they were getting 400,000 visits a day, huge numbers, right? Which is dwarfed now. 400,000 a day is like squat, you know, like blogs are doing that. Uh, and then Prodigy, like I mentioned before, they'll hook you up for $4,000 a week for a banner. And like, here's the kick in the nuts with Prodigy. I had Prodigy for a very short period of time. I think it was like 94-ish. I had it. And what they did with these ads, they had it before you can even log into the system. You had to wait for like several ads to like just load on a 2400 baud modem. Fucking genius. Thanks a lot, Prodigy. But I, I would wait. I think that's why I ended up canceling. Uh, I, I don't think I really need to get into the legs here because like, if you look at it these days, digital marketers know more about you than you know about yourself. Honestly, just be careful what you say out loud. Like if you tell somebody like, Hey Mark, you need fucking Vagisil. You're going to start seeing like feminine <laughs> hygiene ads, you know? I mean, that's just how it is now. I mean, so I give you internet sponsored ads from May of 1995. I went a little bit outside the box here. All right, Drew Zachman, what do you have for the hot products round? So I, uh, with the 70s, I kind of went a little outside the box here as well. So I figured, you know, what's what's a hotter product than something that can help reduce neural tube defects? Am I right? <laughs> right. 
Uh, yeah, but I'm talking about fulvite, which is a folic acid drug that was approved by the FDA on May 13th, 1976. Now, if you don't know what neural tube defects or NTDs are, uh, I got you guys covered. Don't worry about it. Uh, an NTD occurs when the neural tube fails to close early in embryonic development, resulting in damage to the exposed underlying neural tissue. And these birth defects are like not good at all. Like basically, if you wind up, uh, if you get like a serious case of it, you can get what's called uh, anencephaly, which is like it's like your uh, the skull doesn't completely cover the brain. It's like it's pretty bad. I mean, if, if basically if your child winds up with that, they're going to either be stillborn or uh, if they are, you know, if they are born, they're only going to maybe last a couple of days. So can you die of that in Oregon Trail? No, that was dysentery. <laughs> oh, my that boy. was dysentery. Yeah. Um, or you get attacked. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, this stuff. So basically what they came out with was that, you know, uh, there's no cure for anencephaly, but uh, you can um, try to prevent it a bit if you get enough folic acid before and during pregnancy, which can help you know prevent some of those defects. So, uh, you know, since the United States began fortifying grains with folic acid, there's actually been a 28% decline in pregnancies affected by NTD. So it's been a good thing. Uh, so in order to get the recommended 400 micrograms of folic acid every day, uh, a woman can eat foods four to five of folic acid or take a supplement containing the folic acid, such as fulvite, which was what was approved. Now, Folic acid is basically, uh, it's a synthetic form of the vitamin B9 is really all it is, but uh, you can get it in all sorts of forms over the counter now, but, you know, getting the FDA to approve this, you know, definitely helped out immensely uh, with birth defects back then. So that's what I got. Fulvite. Wow. I thought I went outside the box. Hot product. (laughs) They're saving children, man, crush. (laughs) I mean, well, does the product get any hotter than that? No. And you would think you picked the right judge for it. <laughs> Just had a chance. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. All right, so time to bring the show back down to earth, kind of dumb things down a little bit and go back inside the box. The VHS box, that is. Because for my hot product, I kept it simple, and I went and looked and saw what the brand new releases on VHS were for my week that I had, which was uh, May 8th through the 14th of 1988. Uh, and I found an article in the Evening Sun out of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, May 12th, 1988, and says new video releases include Baby Boom in this movie, the movie I selected, which is The Running Man from Vestron Video, which you could own for the low, low price of $89.98. And in case you're wondering, kids, that's $203.12 in 2021. <laughs> we were uh, wondering. The Running Man Bargain. is a vision. <laughs> Of future television game shows, much like Dueling Decades. And much like rolling ball, Rollerball, it was a precursor to competitive sports. Based on the Stephen King short story written under the pseudonym Richard Bachman, and uh, in the setting is in the year 2019. Convicted felons compete for pardons on national television. By surviving a race through Los Angeles that resembles a battle-scarred rubble, 
that you saw in Escape from New York. Uh, Richard Dawson, <laughs> who shamelessly steals the Johnny Olsen call, come on down, is perfectly cast as the host of the audience participation show that turns bad when framed ex-policeman Arnold Schwarzenegger takes on assassins who wield weapons such as razor-sharp hockey sticks. So this movie, I thought, found its groove once it hit the rental shelves and on cable, it wasn't such a barn burner at the theaters. Uh, the Evening Sun in Baltimore, Maryland also said that Arnold Schwarzenegger's latest wants to have its cake and eat it too. A lurid, sick mix of satire and sadism that'll please Arnie's army of fans. He is a framed cop forced to participate in a television game where people get killed for the ratings. Pop fun. But the movie ends up wallowing in the violence that it pretends to criticize. So that's the Running Man from Vestron Video, eighty nine ninety eight. You could own that all time classic. Did you happen to get the price of Baby Boom? Uh, Baby Boom was actually the same price. <laughs> okay. It was also yes, eighty nine ninety eight. It's so amazing the prices back then. It's crazy. <laughs> Remember that the scene with the old lady where they're taking the bets and she's like, oh, I, I'm paraphrasing here. I think this is what she said. Didn't she say something like, my money's on Ben Richards. He's a bad motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Did she say that? Or is that just come to my, I don't know. It's a great movie. It is. It is a great, yeah. it's a fun movie, but it's dark. That's what it's like. It takes a dark subject and makes it fun. I feel like I heard they were rebooting it but i mean i hear they're rebooting everything so yeah it's true well they I did mean, it was called death race <laughs> come on really what that's what it, it was a reboot i never saw it oh no no i was being I sarcastic no i mean death oh. race. <laughs> i was like same wait, premise what? uh jason statham he wasn't a cop but he wound up getting framed for murdering his family and then he put him in prison and the reason why they <laughs> excuse me the reason why they brought him there was because he used to be a uh, a driver, and so basically they do these like races, and these cars are like pimped out to like no end with like you know missiles and shields and stuff. It's pretty crazy. That's actually a reboot of Death Race from the seventies. Correct. Yeah, it was based yeah. off the original Death Race movie, but I mean it's kind of the same premise. And then if you wind up winning, uh, what was it? If you had to win like three races or some shit like that, uh, they would let him go. I don't think I ever watched that. Yeah, in the original Stephen King short story, The Running Man, it wasn't a disgraced cop. He was forced to go on the game show in order to earn money to get medicine for his sick daughter. It was the only option he had left. It had nothing to do with a disgraced cop. Can he just ask for a raise at work? All right, well, let's <laughs> throw it down to Mike Henneberger for the ruling on the Hunt Products round. All right. Yeah. No, these were, these were all good. Um, I love The Running Man. That's, or, that's such a great movie. Um, and, uh, I'm sure it'll get totally ruined if it gets rebooted. Um, <laughs> but, uh, let's see. And, I mean, medicine for birth defects. I mean, even though my, my daughter was born perfect, um, I, you know, can still give that a little credit. But I have to go with the, the internet ads, even though they're, horrible um <laughs> just so we can keep saying vagisil for anyone listening <laughs> outside of headphones and serve them some vagisil ads <laughs> i love where your head's at we're just all episode that's going to be like the word <laughs> vagisil not sponsored 
<laughs> not yet. Not yet. It's a free. It's a free plug. It's, it's a free, free plug. plug. That's right. All right, man, crush. While you pick up the first point point in this game, you take control of the board. What category are we going with next, man? Man, this is tough. Mid nineties. Um, let's go. Oh, fuck it. Let's just go movies. We'll go movies here. Uh, May twelfth, nineteen ninety five, and you know. 26 years ago today, this Tony Scott, Jerry Brockheimer classic was released to theaters. And if you go over to our Facebook every single day, uh, www.facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, we release movies that came out in the eighties and nineties are all in one post. Usually there's, we pick the, we cherry pick the, uh, the six that we like, and we put them up there And this, that one, this movie was actually on that, uh, that list day. So coincidentally, this is one of those movies though, where, the movie was a monster hit when it came out. And nowadays we don't really hear much about it. We talked about this on the show before, uh, you know, this movie, I think they played on TBS or TNT a lot. Uh, so I think that's the only time I ever hear about it, but it always fascinates me with movies like these. They're huge hits, big, big time money makers at the time. And then they just kind of like fade out over time. And in spite of that, like I initially had like a little bit of apprehension with this pick because I didn't think I would like this movie because I didn't even remember much of it anymore. Uh, like, is it dated? Was it big for the moment in time? And now nobody cares. Like, I honestly don't know the reason why this happened. So I figured I'll watch the movie and if it doesn't hold up, I'll just find something else. So once again, uh, I have 2000 movies and this is not one of the movies I own. So I ended <laughs> up renting this movie on Amazon last night for three 99, which my life, my wife always loves. Uh, but I loved it. So with that said, I'm actually really perplexed why this occurs. Um, you know, maybe you guys don't feel the same way. Let's see how it goes with this movie. Uh, at the box office, this one brought in $157 million in 1995. That's about $275 million in 2021. So pretty good for a like remnant Cold War movie. Obviously, we're a little bit outside the Cold War, but they're still bringing it back in. Uh, the film was nominated for three Oscars. In pretty much like the most popular categories, uh, and of course I'm talking about best sound, uh, best film editing, and best sound effects in editing. Mark's nodding like I'm being serious right now. <laughs> like, no, ed- editing is <laughs> editing is always important. But I mean, obviously, screw best actor uh, or actress. No, I want best editor. Yeah, I mean that's we're talking about a dynamo here when you have the three of those. But I mean, all kidding aside. I'm actually shocked that the two co-stars this one didn't get any, any Oscar buzz for their performances. Uh, you put Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington on the same screen. It's literally a slam dunk in any movie. This movie could have been about like two landscapers and <laughs> those two would have been in it. And you would have been like, oh, this fucking movie's the bomb. Like I'd watch this again and again. Uh, that said, they actually offered uh, before uh, Gene Hackman got this role. They offered his role to Tommy Lee Jones, but he turned it down. But I think that's good, though, because who wanted to see huh. Tommy on another Navy ship? Another ship. Yeah. Like, dude, you just did Under Siege. Yeah. Whatever. I think we're good here. So if uh, if you're into tense movies, water sports, or more accurately, like tactical underwater maneuvers, I think they would call it, uh, Cold War hangovers, angry extremists, Quentin Tarantino dialogue changes, which actually happens in this one, personality clashes, the importance of chain of command. Jack Russell's double mutinies because not you didn't get one mutiny, you got two mutinies, you got Mexican standoffs, and an argument that lasts the entire movie about a Lapanzer stallion. 
then go out and rent yourself a copy of Crimson Tide. And here's a little uh, here's a little factoid that you could take to the bar with you when you're trying to hook up with somebody and you start talking about Crimson Tide because that happens all the time, right? The Panzer Stallions, they're in fact Slovenian. So both <laughs> the guys in this movie are completely wrong. So thank you, Google. In 1995, obviously, <laughs> neither one of these guys could look that up, but I could. But uh, yeah, Crimson Tide. Wow, not even out of the second round, and we've already brought up Vagisil and Crimson Tide. <laughs> and, 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 and look, is it Lapanzer, or Stallions? I don't know. It's fucking horses. And two movies with a dynamo in them. <laughs> there you go. It's true. 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 All right, Drew Zachman, what did you bring for the movies round? Yeah, uh, Crimson Tide is definitely a panty dropper, you know, when you're out at a bar. <laughs> You got to throw that out there. I mean, <laughs> skip the conversation. Be like, you like Crimson Tide? And she's like, you're in, dude. You're oh, so straight in. Spanish fly. Oh, yeah. All right. So for mine, I could not find any releases between May 9th and May 15th of 1976. However, uh, Mark, I believe you also were frequenting this newspaper earlier, but I pulled up the movie calendar and one of my favorite newspapers, the Baltimore Sun. And I'm not joking. I, I like the Baltimore Sun. Um, and several theaters, such as Campus Hill Cinema 2, not one, two, uh, Church Lane Cinema and Glen Burnie Mall, just to name a few. There were several others. They were playing one movie and one movie only. And that movie boasted 93 cars destroyed in the most incredible chase ever filmed. This movie actually came out in July of 74 and actually had 127 cars getting destroyed throughout the film. Now, the movie was written by... Produced by, directed by, and starred the same person, H.B. Halicki. Now, if you're not sure what film I'm talking about, perhaps this tagline will give it away. You can lock your car, but if he wants it, it's gone in 60 seconds. So, that's what I'm talking about. And uh, interestingly enough, I started digging into Halicki. It sounds interesting that this guy did, like, everything by himself. Uh, turns out the guy married Denise Shakarian just before filming the 1989 sequel, Gone in 60 Seconds 2, where they would wind up both starring in that. Uh, Halicki, who was also a stuntman, was tragically killed during the filming of the sequel. But after his death, Shakarian began dating, and I think was even engaged, to some uh, fancy lawyer named Robert Kardashian, uh, who raised some of the dumbest dipshits in the world. Uh, and, and speaking of car chases... Robert Kardashian represented some guy who was in probably the most infamous car chase ever. Uh, albeit they were going to post at speed limits, if not a little bit slower, but still. Uh, oh, and Robert and Denise were third cousins. So, yuck. Um, but yeah, eventually this flick would spawn a 2000, uh, a 2000 remake with Mr. Nicolas Cage and is actually one of the best movies ever made. And I don't care what anybody says. So I'm going with Gone in 60 Seconds as it was in movie theaters. During that time. Wow. So there was not one movie that was no. released during that week. Wow. No. And I, che yeah, I checked a couple spots. And I couldn't find anything that was released because like sometimes like the dates online might be off by a couple days. And so I went into like each of those movies. I went on IMDb, Wikipedia. I went to like a couple different spots and I couldn't find anything that was, which is weird because like it's May, you know, like it's summertime. You figure they'd be having some movies come out, but nothing. Did you go to newspapers.com? Well, yeah, that's where I found ba the Baltimore Sun. Wow. And there was, an, man, if, if it went to that point, I probably would have found a porn that was released. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't research those. But how do you pick 
Oh, it's dude. You just go with like, <laughs> remember uh, it was last year. I, I forgot what I had. It was, I think it was the seventies as well. It was when Jamie Kennedy was on and it was a worst of episode. And I went with some porno. There was about some chick that killed herself at the end. It was like, oh my God, jeez. What's worse than that? Yeah, I, right. I think I won that round too. I forgot what it was called. Are you kink shaming? <laughs> I watched, I actually watched it for research. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, if you're talking about porn, I so I had no idea who this Denise Shakarian is. Just Google her and she probably would be in a porn based on the pictures I saw. So yeah. I thought you were going to say she got married to Nicolas Cage. I thought that's where you're headed. That's where I thought you were going to. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. I mean, he's he's been married once or 17 times. So <laughs> who knows? But she was she was actually involved uh, in the 2000 remake. So. There you go. All right. Wow. All right, guys. So uh, for my movie selection, we're going to go to May 13th, 1988, and we get the release of a movie that the favorably mentioned in the last episode, Bruce Campbell, has gone on to admit that he only did this movie because he needed the money, and it's the least <laughs> favorite of every film that he's ever done. Uh, so we're going to go over to the Daily News, May 18th, 1988, where the headline reads, Bodies to the Left of Us. Bodies to the right, you have the right to remain violent in Maniac Cop. A prolific movie maverick Larry Cohen again displays his patent flair for taking the simple but solid premise and cleverly exploiting every story hook and with it style. The premise here involves a mysterious killer cop played by the hulking Robert Zadar. I don't know if I've ever heard Robert Zadar described as hulking before, but he's hulking in that movie. Did you see the shower scene? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel like that word should be used more, by the way, like in our regular vernacular. I feel like we got to start throwing that around more. Vagisil, go ahead. So the hulking Robert Zadar is uh, rapidly reducing Gotham's law-abiding population uh, via his nocturnal slaughter habits. So frightened citizens respond by killing innocent cops while, you know, maniac cop is out there on the loose on a killing spree. Uh, the result boasts in a higher body count than the latest Friday the 13th movie, which was also released at the same time and was in the theaters. So, of course, naturally, I had to go with the one that has the highest body count. So I went with Maniac Cop. Uh, despite the modest budget and occasionally slapdish direction uh, of genre flicks currently unspooling, Maniac Cop ranks among New York's finest, the review says. Now, the modest budget they talk about was about $1.1 million. Now, it grossed just over half of that. But again, this is one of those movies that found its legs in the aftermarket, on cable, on TV, in the drive-ins, and in VHS rental stores. So that's what I got for my movie selection. May 13th, 1988, it's Maniac Cop. Takes a maniac to catch a maniac. <laughs> I totally forgot Bruce Campbell is in that. The only yeah. scene I remember with him, he's isn't he like uh, cheating on his wife or something with another cop in a hotel or some, yeah, something? Yeah, that's like, like that. the some... whole premise. He she He's cheating on his wife. His wife finds out about it and then gets killed by maniac cop. So, of course, <laughs> he wants to avenge his uh, his wife's death. So it's a, it's a great <laughs> flick. All right, let's go down to Judge Mike Henneberger for the ruling on the movies round. 
Um, this one was a little kind of easy for me. Um, and I, you know, Crimson Tide is a film that, you know, I watch with my dad and my father-in-law. That's kind of what, you know, those movies remind me of. Although, like, I'm a, I'm a big military and history buff, so I'm still interested in that stuff. Um, but not at all interested in, um, the importance of chain of command, um, <laughs> military or otherwise. Um, yeah, it's probably why I didn't do well in the military, um, or with my dad who was 20 years Navy. Um, so yeah, maybe there's just a lot of stuff I need to unpack when it comes to those kinds of movies. Um, so your next, uh, your next book. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry, I should be more familiar with Maniac Cop. I know of it. I have not seen it, so I can't pick Maniac Cop. And, Drew, you don't got to defend yourself. I think Gone in 60 Seconds is one of the best movies ever. Um, so I got to go with Gone in 60 Seconds because it gave us um, the reboot of Gone in 60 Seconds. See, it had legs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're not allowed to use it. You Why chastising not? son of a bitch. <laughs> All right, Drew Zachman, you pick up a point. You tie up this game heading into our final one point round. You get control of the board. What category are we going with next? All right, I'm going to do TV. If you're a sports fan, specifically living in Boston, odds are you may have been tuned in to the Red Sox game against the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, maybe not, though, given the Red Sox were 9-15 and 15 at the time and Milwaukee was 10-11, and 11, so not exactly a battle of uh, first-place powerhouses. <clears throat> now, while the teams weren't doing well, there was no shortage of all-star talent here. Uh, Milwaukee had a young Robin Yount, as well as some guy named Hank Aaron, uh, two Hall of Famers right there. And Boston had Carl Yastrzemski and Carlton Fisk, two more Hall of Famers, and also Dwight Evans, who should be in the Hall. I honestly don't know why he's not, but still, some good talent there. Records weren't showing it. Uh, terrible pitching on both sides, basically. But this game in particular was not about the offense. It was, in fact, about the pitching. Now, Boston jumped out to an early one nothing lead in the bottom of the first before Milwaukee tied it in the second. And Boston would take the lead for good in the fifth as the Sox wound up winning 2-1. to one. So a good pitcher's duel here. So, uh, like I said, right, this game is about the pitching. Milwaukee's Pete Broberg took the loss, while Jim Willoughby for Boston earned the save. But Boston's starting pitcher, well, he threw six in the third innings while scattering five hits and allowing only one earned run. Now, that Boston pitcher would only pitch in the majors until the end of the 1978 season. And uh, while his career ERA of 5.05 might not look like much, he certainly provided some stiff competition. During his 1977 season with Seattle, he threw three complete games, proving he could last all night. Uh, he did give up a few home runs in his career, 61 to be exact. So he did get spanked around a bit. <laughs> but on May 14th, 1976, one pitcher was ahead above the rest, and that pitcher was Dick Pole. There we go. <laughs> nice. May 14th, uh, 1976, we got to watch Dick Pole <laughs> pitch well against the Brewers. Oh, that's great. Back in the Mark, do you remember that episode we did back in the day when we were poop culture with uh, the weird sports names? Yeah, we had Dick Pole and Rusty Cunts. Rusty Cunts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That was a great one. 
All right, man crush. <laughs> what did you bring? All right, so let's go uh, May 12th, 1995. We got a Friday here. Uh, I was initially going to pick the conclusion of a show right here, and then I came across something very odd, and it sparked my interest. So now, like, one of the reasons we started doing this show was to give folks, like, a little bit, like, a, a mental vacation from the daily grind, allowing our audience to reminisce about nostalgia. But the other reason, and this is what makes it fun for me, is finding things from our youth that we may have overlooked or perhaps things that just weren't initially in our wheelhouse that we actually enjoy as adults. And for me, this selection falls into the latter category. And here we get a debut of a show that would premiere a few weeks later on Comedy Central, May 28th to be exact. So I know you're, you're saying to yourself, man crush, why the fuck are you picking it? Well, it's sort of like what would happen when we find a sneak preview for a movie the same exact thing occurred for this TV show on uh, Friday, May 12, 1995 in roughly 25 theaters. They showed the first episode of this hilarious new this quotes here, hilarious new comedy central series. And I, actually it is pretty funny. Uh, Dr. Katz, professional therapist. And uh, they played it before certain feature presentations at the movie theater. I saw these commercials all the time in the late nineties. Like all the time i never gave two shits about it i was like eh, never gave it a chance well thanks to some dude on youtube that uploaded all six seasons and 81 <laughs> episodes into one video that's like 11 hours long oh, <laughs> i stayed up for like two hours actually it was probably longer than that because i think i watched like seven or eight episodes in a row so I, I finally watched it it's pretty damn hilarious i don't know if you guys have ever seen the show before yeah uh, i'm not sure if i would have loved it as much as a teen but as an adult, it's damn good, man. Like the, a lot of stuff they talk about is just hilarious. Like I don't think I would even gotten it as a teen, but definitely as an adult you do. Uh, but if you don't remember this one, you might remember this. They use something called squiggle vision. Yeah, squiggle vision. So it, yeah, so there was a cartoon, but it looked like everyone had Parkinson's. Like <laughs> it's kind of difficult to watch at first, but you get you get used to it. Uh, but they utilize this so they can incorporate a comedian's stand-up performance as like he was on the couch with Dr. Katz. So they would like use a part from his bit and then Dr. Katz would reply and they'd go back and forth and you would never know the wiser. They didn't have to match up the mouths. They didn't have to do anything because they had this weird squiggle thing going on, right? Uh, at least the, the several uh, episodes that I watched, it's, that's how they were. It's oh, yeah. very dry humor. And it features amazing comedians. You had uh, Ray Romano, David Tell, Kevin Meany, John Stewart, uh, Louis C.K. Are we allowed to talk about Louis C.K. again? Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure of the rules anymore. Uh, Mitch Hedberg, oh, uh, I love classic. Mitch Hedberg. You know, rest in peace. Uh, Emo Phillips, great one from back in the day. Conan O'Brien was on it. Gilbert Gottfried, Rodney Dangerfield, Bobcat Goldthwait, even had Dave Chappelle. I mean, the list literally goes on and on and on for this show for like six seasons. So if you dig comedy, these comedy like therapy sessions, they're, they're gold. Like everything that goes on in them, like you just you don't even have to pay too much attention as an adult. You just watch it. And I was laughing my ass off. But uh, go check out it's Dr. Katz, professional therapist. And if you're quick enough, you can go watch this dude's 11 hours of it all in one <laughs> video. That's up there, but or go buy it. I mean, it's it's funny, but yeah, that's what I got. It was played in the movie theaters, so weird. Awesome, yeah, I was a huge <laughs> fan of that show. Yeah, good humor. I do you watched it back then? 
yeah, I watched it when it originally came out. I haven't seen it since, but it was. I awesome. wish I did. It was a fantastic show. Oh, it's so funny. Him dealing with his son, yeah. <laughs> who's like just dumb as shit. Oh, it's great. And I, I haven't worked at Comedy Central for about uh, six years, so I'm not saying this for them. It's for the audience. Um, <laughs> but supposedly the Comedy Central app has everything that's ever been on Comedy Central. So oh, no shit. You, you might be able to find it on there, too. Uh, and it'll probably be better quality because the ones that are on YouTube, they're all ripped from VHS. Yeah, like if it's on there, I don't know how far they. I mean, they have some really old stuff on there, but uh, I don't. I don't know if that's if that's. And on they there. brought it back a couple of times, so they might have like the the older stuff or the yeah. newer stuff because I think uh, I think I might have seen like 2007 or something somewhere around there. They had brought it back, so they might have it. Definitely check it out. It's funny if for older people. I'm 43. I watch it now, and a lot of stuff's relatable. So. Yeah. All right, guys, so I found my television selection in the uh, primetime highlights section of the Orlando Sentinel, May 14th, 1988, and where the headline read, An Ocean of Talent is on hand for Atlantic Records, 40th Bash. Atlantic Records, 40th Anniversary, it's only rock and roll. A four-hour celebration, spotlighting performances by top rock, jazz, rhythm, and blues artists spanning the label's four-decade history will be televised at 8 tonight on Home Box Office. The program will originate live from New York City's Madison Square Garden. Among the Atlantic artists scheduled to perform on the show are The Average White Band, The Bee Gees, Phil Collins, Mick Jagger, Genesis, The Manhattan Transfer, Herbie Mann, The Rascals, New Shoes, Michael Hutchins of NXS, Iron Butterfly, Benny King, Debbie Gibson, The Coasters, Robert Plant, Keith Richards, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Vanilla Fudge, and yes, and the article completely forgets the headliner of the act, the reunion of Led Zeppelin, John Paul Jones, Jimmy Page, and Robert Plant with Jason Bonham on drums. From that night from them, we heard Cashmere, Heartbreaker, Whole Lot of Love, Misty Mountain Hop, and of course, Stairway to Heaven. Now, there were some non-music guests there as well. Uh, that included Bill Murray, Lisa Bonet, and Michael Douglas, and Robert Hayes from Airplane. He served as the guest guide for the special event, offering kind of a backstage look at the concert, and he did some interviews and stuff. So, Did he still have his drinking problem during that? <laughs> he, yeah, with all those rock stars? Yeah, man, I feel bad for him. So May 14th, 1988, it's Atlantic Records celebrating their 40th anniversary with four hours of it on HBO. Now, HBO only covered four hours. The concert in itself was over 13. Can I just clarify? Did you call the Bee Gees an average white band? (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you said? No, no, no. We had the average white band and the Bee Gees. Oh, I thought you were starting there and then you were leading up to Led Zeppelin, which was the above average white band. Correct. Yes. Okay. And where does where does Vanilla Fudge land in that? <laughs> They're in the middle. They're all right. They forget, you know, Led Zeppelin, but they include fucking new shoes. Like- <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's toss it down to Mike Henneberger for his verdict on the television round. This was a good one. And um, it's. It's tough for me um, because, of course, you know, Dr. Katz, like you said, it's one of those things like I 
would never have gotten at the age I was when it came out. Even though, like, I was a huge, I've been a huge comedy nerd my whole life, you know, from just our such early memories of watching Saturday Night Live when I probably didn't even get those, you know. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I'm definitely going to go back and take a look at those because I, I know how highly regarded it is in the world of comedy. Uh, so I'm sure it's, it, it's going to be amazing oh, and I'm glad cool. to have something that I can go back to and appreciate now as an adult. Um, and let's see, Dick Pole. I mean, come on, like Dick Pole. That 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 you know, I was leaning towards Dick Pole for a little while. Um, so was he? Not something. Not something I do often. But uh, um, and then Atlantic Records. Um, you know, I got to give them a shout out because they let me use a Death Cab for Cutie song in my audiobook for free. Um, of course, I needed the uh, Death Cab for Cutie's management's approval on that and the bands, which I got. Um, and that was one of the, the, the bands in my audiobook that I was really scared of being able to get. So I went and got, there's 20 songs in my audiobook, um, from small punk bands to Jimmy Eat World. Um, but I left Jimmy Eat World and Death Cab for Cutie for last so I could kind of lay on their management and record labels and let, and say like, well, everybody else gave me their music <laughs> for free. Why are you, you guys want to be the only ones? Um, so Atlantic Records let me use them. Um, probably weren't around when that concert happened, um, but uh, still a great record label. Um, so to make things interesting, I'm going to go with Atlantic Records. All right. You know, you know who wasn't on that guest list? Dick Pole. <laughs> Shame. He just wasn't written. <laughs> yeah, it's good that you brought that up, though. And I was wondering while I was listening to your book with all those bands in there, what would you have done? Because obviously you wrote it with the songs in mind. Yeah. Like, what would you have done if they were like, nah, you can't use it? Well, I was going to, I pro I mean, if I couldn't have gotten the Jimmy Eat World songs, I wouldn't have released it. Because the for those who don't know, every song, every chapter of the book has a song that goes with it. Um, and it appears as like a soundtrack to what's happening. Um, it's not like an essay about the song. And so the first chapter is a Jimmy Eat World song, and that kind of sets up the format, you know? And so if I couldn't have had that song in there, um, it wouldn't have made sense. And so I would have just fought. I mean, it took me almost a year to get all the songs cleared because I was that dedicated to having it the way it's supposed to be. Um, and in fact, Universal Music uh, was going to charge me for the Jimmy Eat World songs. And the thing is, is 50% of the royalties from my book, ebook, and audiobook are going to mental health charities, um, and artist relief, um, and tour crew relief charities. So that's a big part of why bands allowed me to use their music for free. Um, and the book is about, you know, mental health struggles, um, and how music kind of helped me get through that. And that's another, I mean, none of these bands let me use this music because I am me, because I'm nobody, you know. Um, so they they let me use it because of that stuff. And um, the deal was set from the first bands that it's called an MFN, uh, Most Favored Nations Agreement, meaning that you can use these songs for free as long as no one else gets paid. Whoever gets paid for it, then you have to pay these bands the same amount. Uh, so whoever is like the most favored that gets um, that gets applied to everyone else. 
So if I had to pay one band, I had to pay all of them for publishing and for masters, which would have come out on the price that Universal Music was going to charge me for Jimmy Eat World, which was $125 for two Jimmy Eat World songs each. That's such an arbitrary number. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. just like, it means nothing. And even if the band got 50% of that yeah. <laughs> split between uh, four guys, like what that's, that's so arbitrary and it was bullshit, but also it would have come out to over $10,000 for me and I wouldn't have been able to do that. So Jimmy at worlds uh, just recorded um, to some live stream concerts this, this year where they re-recorded their music on these live streams. And so I was able to go to Jimmy Eat World and get those new recordings. Nice. So I wouldn't have to pay Universal Music, but I had to go through their management and their management talked to them. And um, I like paid for this VIP session meet and greet online so I could tell them about it so they wouldn't understand that I'm not just some guy exploiting their music. Um, and so they were familiar with it. And yeah, they were totally cool about letting me use that stuff for free. Um, so I wouldn't have to pay Universal Music. And in fact, Dashboard Confessional and the Smoking Popes gave me versions, re-recorded versions of their songs that they own too, so I wouldn't have to go to Universal Music. Um, nice. so yeah, I mean, hearing the audiobook now, I've come to realize that this, like, should have started as an audiobook. Like, it, it's, it's meant to be heard as an audiobook. It's not meant to be read. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I feel really great about it and really proud of it as a book, but hearing the audiobook, it's just, it like actually puts you in it. Um, absolutely. 110%. Dude, like, uh, I told Mark this when I first got it. I think it was like, uh, it just was it like April 27th or something was like the date or 28th was a date that it came out in Audible and they put it in my account. And I was like, all right, I'm going to start listening to this that and Tyler Posey reading the book. Yeah. Dude, it feels like, and I, I always listen to it at nighttime. So like I'm, I'm getting ready to go to bed. I'm laying in bed. I'm not watching television. I'm listening to the book and it puts you in that hotel room. You're what dude. It's like a, it's like a one man movie with flashbacks that you can, he does such a fantastic, I listen to, I think I said this to either you or, uh, or Steph or somebody like I listen to a ton of audiobooks. And he does an amazing job where he puts you in that room. Yeah. You don't get that often. It's usually puts me asleep. And the worst part about your book is that it kept me up because I was listening to it. And I'm like, well, it's when 3 you said, fucking AM. Like, when you said that you were listening, you were listening to it like before bed, I I I had that thought because other people have told me that too. And it's always been the same thing. Like they stay up for three hours or for yeah, like, I mean, it's terrible. only six hours long. Um but yeah, I mean, I take very little credit for how good the audiobook is because Tyler did such an amazing job with it. And then also the music being in there. Like, I'll take credit as like the producer who came up with the idea and put it together. But like having those bands, like their voices and then Tyler's also, um, makes it, it makes it so different that like I, I feel like I can listen to it objectively. Like, I, f I feel like it's not my book anymore because, I mean, Tyler also did it for free. Wow. You know, he, he, we had a mutual connection, um, through our publicist 
and he's you know has pop has played in pop punk bands and is in the emo scene too and so like and has talked about his mental health issues and so when he read the book he just related to it so much that he i mean i have a video interview that i put out with him where he says like I didn't know what you wanted me to do, whether it was an audiobook, whether it was a TV show, I was just down to do it. So like I'm hoping we get to make a TV show out of uh, it. Yeah, That's it's awesome. For sure it's like at the very least the, the two things I see is either a play. Yeah, I thought of that too. Or a movie. Like I saw it as a movie. I was like this can totally be one night this dude sitting in there and just, you know, going through. It's amazing. Like go out and get this book. Yeah, I mean, I thought of it as a movie first, um, but because it's so kind of uh, serialized, you know, it feels true, like true. Uh, those need to be like episodes because I don't know how. It's I, almost, yeah, I you know I don't know how the, it would make it a two-hour movie. You yeah, know? you couldn't. You know what? It actually reminds me of, and it's completely different. But uh, Thirteen Reasons Why, the way that first season is set up, not before the second season, and it got all crazy. But like that first season, how it's like segmented up, I, I could totally see it. Cool. You know, 13 episodes yeah no and and yeah and that's the thing like tyler too like he did it for the same reasons as like the bands like he could relate to it and he you know wanted to be part of what it could do like the the potential it has to help other people who went through that stuff like i did you know like the only reason it exists is because i'm not that person anymore and i'm healthy enough i'm mentally healthy enough to be able to say like not be ashamed of that anymore because I overcame, I overcame it, you know? And, um, now I get to say like, that's who I was, but look who I am now. And I want other people to know that that's possible, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, um, hopefully I, I'll, if, you know, if I can get you guys, you know, ways to listen to it too, if you haven't, um, yeah, I mean, I just want people to hear it. I don't like, I barely make any money off of it, but I mean, that's not, what it's it, about like, it's I, really good man and like just circling back to the episode i could totally see you at a bar trying to talk to a chick about crimson tide <laughs> yeah <laughs> for sure that was my that was my go-to that was my <laughs> my opener you never say it in the book but now i'm putting two, two i'm not i didn't want to give it i didn't want to give away my gold you know <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I picked up a point in that last round, and this game's all tied up. Heading into our first two-point round, and I have control. You know what? We're going to go to the music round. All this talk of music. Let's just do some music. So May 12th, 1988, uh, Capitol Records recording artist Megadeth released their second single from the album, So Far, So Good, So What? And that was an album for Megadeth that received almost no radio play in support of it. But this single would go on to eventually help push the album to platinum status, along with uh, their, their first single, which was a cover of the Sex Pistols' Anarchy in the UK. So for my pick, I'm rolling up a little Mary Jane. Now, contrary to popular belief, Mary Jane is not a song about weed. Megadeth bass player and coffee mogul Dave Ellison talked about the real-life origins of Mary Jane in 2009. He said that while he was visiting his hometown in Jackson, Minnesota, he was contacted by the nearby Jackson County Historical Society. They have a museum there, and they wanted him to contribute his own historical perspective on the story of the now-legendary girl Mary Jane Twillinger, who the song was actually written about. 
Legend has it that uh, she was a young witch burned alive by her father in the nearby Loon Lake, Minnesota Cemetery. The mystery surrounding her grew to such legendary proportions that over the years it was rumored that anyone who dared violate her grave in any way was doomed to certain and immediate death. There were even stories of deadly car crashes involving people who got drunk or had some sort of crazy mayhem around her grave, and they thought it was all harmless fun, Ellison said. So, it's Mary Jane by Megadeth. It was released as a single May 12th, 1988. It's off the album So Far, So Good, So What. Overall, it's it's a really good track. Kind of an interesting sound for early Megadeth. I think it has kind of more of a prog rock sound. It's a good tune, uh, but it was released in the week I have, so that's what we got. It's Megadeth. All right, Drew Zachman, what did you bring for the music round? All right, so uh, this album was released on May 14th, 1976, and it made an appearance on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. Uh, I'm pretty sure loads of cocaine were used to make this, but... (laughs) Two songs made the top 40, uh, Last Child and Back in the Saddle. This album also sold over 4 million copies, and it has been stated that this album also influenced bands such as Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and Motley Crue, as well as Nirvana. Kurt Cobain himself said uh, Rocks, which is the album I'm talking about from Aerosmith, was one of the albums he thought was most influential to Nirvana's sound, and he wrote that in his journal in 1993. Now, Back in the Saddle is cited by Slash and James Hetfield as among their favorite rock songs, so pretty good uh, compliment there. In fact, Aerosmith was the reason Hetfield said he wanted to learn guitar. So, pretty awesome. Now, as for Slash, uh, I found this story in Q Magazine. It's pretty pretty awesome, actually, so I'm going to read it to you guys. So, uh, uh, Slash says, Rocks was the album that inspired him to learn guitar. And that album, you know, basically changed his life. And Slash said... I was in seventh grade and just going through the whole 78 music thing that was happening for kids, which was like cheap trick in the cars. Anyway, there was this chick that I was going after that was considerably older than me. I'd been uh, trying to be cool enough to take her out and have my way with her. Finally, I sort of weaseled my way into her apartment. So we're hanging out and she put rocks by Aerosmith on and I was mesmerized by it. It was like the be all and end all best attitude fucking hard rock record. I'd grown up in music, but this was like my record. I must have listened to it about half a dozen times, completely ignored her, and then got on my bike and rode. I was totally in there. I was at least going to get a decent French kiss out of it, and I completely dropped the ball for Aerosmith. And that was that. It's probably one of the records that sums up my taste in hard rock bands to this day. Meanwhile, she's out there somewhere, and I missed it, but it was worth it. So, uh, pretty, pretty funny story. So Slash basically gave up a girl so he could go become Slash, essentially. That's too bad, because he... he... Probably never had a girl again. Ever again. Ever again. That was his only chance. <laughs> that was his pinnacle. That was it, yeah. Um, but yeah, so Rocks by Aerosmith. If we didn't get this album, we might have never gotten Metallica on Guns N' Roses. So as they say, it has legs. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on. That's a stretch. Can you picture, like when I hear Slash got on his bike and like rode away, I, I picture him being about nine years old, but I also... Can't picture him without the hair and the top hat. Oh, he probably had the top hat, like, at birth. I'm seeing this nine-year-old kid with slash (laughs) hair and a top hat. 
I'm like I'm like a wife beater t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cigarette head just dangling out of <laughs> yeah. his mouth. Hasn't been ashed yet. <laughs> All right, man crush. What did you bring for the music round? Oh man, I went just as influential as Drew Zachman. <laughs> Let's go uh May 13th of 1995. Uh you know what though? Anytime I see a former guest of ours pop up on any of these lists. I will go back and, and go a little deeper and do that work so I can make that selection. And these guys, we had these guys on way back in the day. We we mentioned Poop Culture before. They were actually guests of ours on Poop Culture. This is probably like five years ago, six years ago. And this is how fucking awesome these guys were. We had scheduled an interview with them, right? And the week of their interview, their booking agent scheduled them for a, a show the night of the interview. And like typically when this happens, like we're left to scramble, look for a replacement. It sucks. Um, we get it though. I mean, it happens. These guys work, they're getting paid for a gig. It's important. So that said, it still shafts us pretty hard when this happens. So, but this is what happens. So, like these guys, they emailed me and they were like, Hey, there was a scheduling snafu. Uh, can we reschedule? And we sent a couple emails back and forth. And neither one of us can come to a mutual date. They either had a show or we had somebody else on. So instead, these guys were like, well, you know, what? why don't we just do the interview from backstage that night? And boom, done deal. They came on. They chatted with us for like an hour backstage. Wow. Uh, was the audio fucking horrendous? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. It was. Uh, but it was it was cool as hell. Much respect to those dudes for making that work. Mark was there. He knows exactly where I'm going with this. Uh, so this album, it was released in May of 1995. Super, super small pressing. It was done by Piss Off Records. Um, so, you know, it was very small. Uh, long gone. Sold out. I did find a copy of this on eBay today after I was doing the research. And I almost purchased it. I, I might by the end of the show. It just depends on how much I drink by the end of the night. Uh, so I, I went in hard for research on this one. And I, I sort of found like the CD release party that was on May 13th of 1995. And it was at the Copacetic Cafe in old San Bernardino, California, uh, where they played that night with um, Jump With Joey, King Willie, The Specs, and Skip Tooth. Many people you probably never heard of, but the album it would go on to be re-released two times, at least two times by Mojo Records. The first time is after their second album came out, Turn Off the Radio. Uh, that became popular in 1996, and they released an EP with it, uh, which had a couple of the songs from this album. Then they did a full re-release in 2000, and I think there was actually one more in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, complete re-release. So Drew Zachman, once again, Vagisil, we have legs here. <laughs> uh, and the other thing, too, the band re-released a lot of these songs on subsequent albums, like over the years, like onesies and twosies, like over and over and over. So if you're into like punk or ska and you're like me and you enjoy finding like early cuts from the band that doesn't have that pristine studio sound, that is exactly what this album is. So if you're looking for this, like if you're going to go out and buy it after I tell you what the name is and you want the original release, just make sure that it has 19 tracks in total. There's 18 and one hidden. And because all the uh, the re-releases have more tracks, of course, except for the uh, the EP. Uh, and here's the other thing about this band. They're, n they're not super popular anymore. They do have a hell of a following. 
and uh, they put on one of the best live shows that I've ever seen. Seriously, like if you ever see these guys playing live anywhere, just go and, and watch them. It's it's a fucking event. Uh, but you know, those bands you grew up with that, like they either broke up or they went like all adult as we got older and we kind of just like faded. We kind of waned away from them. Not this band. Uh, this band never did either one of those. You can either throw on an old album or their latest, which was uh, life sucks. Let's dance, which came out in 2018. And you'll instantly be skanking all over your living room at 43 years old. I, I guarantee it. Uh, but it's the release of Real Big Fish's debut album, Everything Sucks. And it includes timeless tracks in this one. I'm cool. Hate you. Why do all the girls think they're fat? I want your girlfriend to be my girlfriend, too. Uh, go away. Uh, fuck yourself. And beer. Love beer. Those are all tracks, too. Such I wasn't telling people to go fuck themselves. Those are all tracks from that album. It's It's fantastic. Real big fish. Yeah, that was an awesome episode. Those guys are yeah, so cool, man. Remember how bad the audio was? Oh, it was, it was so atrocious. Bad. It's probably one of the worst ever, but whatever. It was cool. Wow. I feel like that's cheating a little bit because you know about my ska band history. Oh, I didn't know about your ska band. Well, uh, yeah, I kind of I mentioned but, it yeah, a, little a little in bit. the book. Not a lot. A little but, bit, yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Pandering. All right, let's toss it down to Judge Mike Henneberger for the ruling on the music round. All right. I'm, I, people who know me might think they know where I'm going on this one. Um, you know, I have my, my history in, in playing in a ska band. I started a ska band when I was 14. Um, <clears throat> it was a Christian ska band because I never wanted to get laid. Um, cause Jesus wouldn't like that. Jesus would not have liked that. So I did all I could to avoid it. Um, but, uh, but I, I grew up in this small little town in South Texas where like it was, it's amazing. I even ever heard ska or punk, um, thanks to like my little, my skater friends, um, and skate videos and stuff like that. Um, but that's kind of what saved me, you know, finding that stuff and, uh, starting a band. And that's how I learned how to write was writing songs. That's how music became so important to me. Um, and of course that was like, I mean, that's, that band started in 97, which was like right around, you know, real big fish hitting the radio, you know, maybe a couple of years later. It was the summer of 96. Okay. When, uh, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that album and that band are have a special place in my heart um because it you know a lot of people always hate when they're like their ska or punk bands get on the radio or their favorite like indie bands like get popular but for me i feel like it validates my taste you know it's right. it's like all these people are discovering it and liking it but i i knew about it before so um so i feel cooler about it um so yeah that 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 has a special place um too however I can't go with it because um, <laughs> when I had my ska band in this small little town, there was a rival ska band, <laughs> which sounds so stupid and like, like the nerdiest freaking skank off. Yeah. Um, but uh, all the guys in that band were like marching band musicians, like new music. All of us, like most of us had just picked up instruments, never knew how to play. 
but we knew we actually knew punk and ska and they didn't but real big fish was on the radio and all they played were real big fish covers they didn't even like go through the trouble oh no they they knew a couple sublime covers too um but they weren't a christian ska band and they played parties and they you know drank and um so like they would make flyers and their band was called monkeys doing it <laughs> a bunch of posers <laughs> and uh they would make flyers that said kingsville is my hometown that said kingsville's only ska band Ooh, and wow. we had been playing for at least a year longer than them um but after high school we actually toured the country a couple times and they never did anything um so validated again oh so yeah so then fuck them so yeah. you should throw that out i think my pick is still valid <laughs> oh for sure um <laughs> no and i just saw i just saw i mean it, it's been a couple years but i saw a real big fish at warp tour a couple of years before oh, so ended. yeah no i'm i i will still watch real big fish every chance i get same with like less than jake and i still love all those bands on um, next week by the way chris, oh really uh, chris will be on next week yeah. oh that's awesome cool um and then you know um mark you you had me at capitol records because i was a security guard at the capitol records building in la um for a little while and i i think my wife thinks it's funny uh she might think it's annoying but uh she still kind of laughs every time that iconic capitol records building appears on a movie or tv show i say hey i used to work there um (laughs) and Every time it's it's an instinct. I can't help it. Um, Independence Day gets destroyed. So yeah, <laughs> um, which I think I don't know. Is it apartments yet? Everybody like for the longest time, people talked about it. You know, sh- getting sold and turned into apartments. So it's a badass building. Yeah, it is that. very cool. Um, but I got to go with Aerosmith, and I'm not even the biggest Aerosmith fan. But I think that's that's you know, if it gave us Slash and it gave us all these other, you know, bands. Um, and just for the visual it gave me of nine-year-old Slash riding the riding the bike and blowing his chance, his one chance to lose his virginity. His only shot. Yeah. Uh, but no, that that's definitely uh, an important record. Uh, so, yeah, going with Aerosmith. All right. Awesome. Yeah, maybe one day Slash will lose his virginity. <laughs> one day. <laughs> Again. Yeah. <laughs> for that day. <laughs> All right, Drew Zachman, you pick up a big two points heading into the final round, which is the news round. That means you're in the lead and you get to decide if you want to defer or if you want to go first. I'll go first here. Uh, all right. So for news, I have May 12th, 1976. Uh, while sitting alone in his jail cell, Nelson Mandela, uh, <laughs> Mandela began writing his life memoir. <laughs> I had to. I'm sorry. I know. Uh, I, knew. I was going <laughs> to say it if you didn't. Well, you already. You guys already got OJ Simpson. Brought yep. OJ Simpson back up too. So. Yeah, yeah, he's been up a lot. Yeah, no, uh, no, no, Bill Clinton here either. So, uh, May 11th, 1976. Uh, the there was an amendment to the Federal Election Campaign Act, uh, and basically what wound up happening was um, there was a case Buckley versus Vallejo. Uh, it was a landmark decision of the U.S. Supreme Court on campaign finance. Uh, 
basically a majority of justices held that limits on election spending in the federal election campaign of 1971 are unconstitutional. So uh, now the court, they recognize that reporting and disclosure requirements infringe on First, Amendment, uh, on First Amendment rights. Uh, but the court also held that the government has a vital interest in providing the electorate with information as to where political campaign money comes from and how it's spent by the candidate in order to aid the voters in evaluating those who seek federal office. Um, also, it, uh, it has a vital interest in allowing voters to place each candidate in the political spectrum more precisely than is often possible solely on the basis of party labels and campaign speeches. So, um, yeah, so basically it was, you know, just kind of like full disclosure requirements. Uh, it, it would help deter actual corruption and avoid the appearance of corruption by exposing large contributions and expenditures, uh, you know, kind of bring that to the light for the public to see. And um, that's it works really well now. And I feel like our, our government and our leaders are not corrupt. I feel like they're stand up individuals. And I feel like I feel very strongly, as a matter of fact, that the the amendment to the Federal Election Campaign Act on May 11th, 1976, really helped shape our country and really, you know, help get it to where it is today. So that's what I have. All right, man crush. Uh, what did you bring for the news round? <laughs> oh, man. All right. So let's go uh, May 11th, 1995. Same day as Drew there. Was it Mandela? <laughs> His first year in office. <laughs> now, uh, here we go, though. We're going to have one of the most nefarious releases of all time here. And I actually I wanted Mike Ranger to do this one. He was going to call in and deliver this one. Gaming is Mike Ranger's thing. I'm sure he's been waiting. I, I think he even told me before he's been waiting for this one and he would have given it due diligence. Uh, his, like, I don't think his wife is going to let him on tonight, so he could not make it to do the call in. Uh, so I'm going to give this one a try. I'm going to see if I can give it some justice here because I'm really I'm not a gamer. You know, like sometimes I wish I grew up and I was a gamer, but I was just never really into consoles after the Nintendo. So it is what it is. It just wasn't my bag. All right. But let's begin with a quote from the CEO of Sega of America from February of 1995, just to give this a little context. All right. And here's the quote. It says the magic price point is $300. If your product costs more than $300, then your market is very, very limited. Okay. That's his quote. All right. Initially, the North American release of this product, it was supposed to happen on what Sega was going to call Saturn Day, and that was going to be uh, Saturday, September 2nd, 1995. Uh, and that was slated to be one week prior to the upstart Sony PlayStation that was being released on September 9th of 1995. And a little interesting bit here, Mike Ranger gave me this one. He was explaining to me how Sony initially went to Sega to work together on some hardware and Sega of Japan said, hell fucking no. Like what do these dudes know about making games? They're, they make TVs. So then they said no. And then they doubled down on uh, just killing the PlayStation before it got started. So Tom Kalinske, the same guy that I gave you that quote from before of Sega of America, he announced at E3, which is the electronic entertainment expo they had on May 11th, 1995. 
that instead of waiting until Saturn Day, which is the worst name ever, <laughs> they're just going to go ahead and uh, start selling the Sega Saturn right now. As soon as he was done talking, we're selling it. It's coming out. And then he followed that up with a statement by just dropping the lowest introductory price they can come out with, with $399.99, which is the equivalent of $700 in 2021. And like, bro, like, I kind of remember you just saying in February that $300 was that, like, wasn't that the top off? Like, huh? Anyway, so he says that several hours later, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this before, but it's it's epic. If you've never seen it, go look it up on YouTube. Steve Race, he's the head of PlayStation America. He walks up to the podium in E3. It's like their time to talk. He goes up there and just goes, I make believe I'm walking up, walk up. 299. Drops the fucking <laughs> mic, leaves the building. And that's it. He's $100 less. And since like Sega launched early without any real notice, there were only 30,000 units that had been sent to select retailers, right? And even though they had this four-month head start, they created a hardware shortage by themselves. But like people just couldn't even get their hands on these Sega Saturns because there's only 30,000 of them for those four months. And since they basically sold those 30,000 units to Toys R Us, it pissed off all the other retailers. So in spite of that, there were several big toy store chains like uh, like KB Toys, for instance, that refused to even carry the Sega Saturn when it was back in stock, back in stock rather, when once the hardware shortage was over. And on top of that, all the game companies that were prepared for a September release, they didn't have any games to sell for the Sega Saturn. So <laughs> if you were one of the lucky people or not so lucky to buy it in May or over that summer, you didn't even have any games to play for the Sega Saturn. So anyhow, Klinsky, he was out of Sega by the next year, by the next summer, he was ousted. By that summer, actually by the summer of 97, Sega was down to a 12% market share. Now, if you remember, it was like the Sega Genesis and NES for years yeah. leading up to this. So they had a decent market share. Now they had 12% of that U.S. market gone and they're like what systems are they making these days and where is freaking sony like where's sony at now and where's that where are these guys it, it wasn't all that bad for them i the saturn still kicked ass in japan is what what mike told me he said um the system was actually very good uh but it was just a flaming dumpster fire in the united states because two moronic decisions early release and it was too expensive. So I give you the release of the Sega Saturn and everything that unfolded after that. Wow. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Talk about legs. Oh, Jack totally. <laughs> <laughs> or lack thereof. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So for my new selection, I actually found it in the sports people section of the Courier Journal from Louisville, Kentucky, May 13th, 1988. And wherever the headline reads, you can't give these things away. Heavyweight champion Mike Tyson says he's had nothing but bad luck and accidents with his $183,000 Bentley convertible. And the car has brought more bad luck to two Port Authority of New York policemen who he tried to give it to. 
Tyson and his wife, actress Robin Givens, were involved in a minor accident Sunday morning near the Manhattan entrance of the Holland Tunnel. When the two officers, whose names have not been released, offered to give Tyson some assistance, Tyson told them, you guys can just take the car and keep it. The officers then drove the car to a private garage in New Jersey, where it stayed until the commander of the Holland Tunnel police detail heard about the incident. Uh, detectives then took the car and returned it to the company that handles Mike Tyson's business interests. Uh, I got real problems with this behavior, said the Port Authority police superintendent. The main difficulty is that we had to ask the officers. We shouldn't have to do that about the situation. The information should be first and faster. So they didn't tell anybody about this. They just took the Bentley that Mike Tyson gave them and said, hey, we'll just park it in the garage and drive it around whenever we want. So in the other half of the story is that week, Mike Tyson was also in the news for another reason. Because later in the week, he decides, you know what? I've had it with living in the United States. I'm going to move to Monaco. So, yeah, that's going to be a thing now to avoid all the taxes and everything. So Mike Tyson gets into a car accident, gives away his Bentley, and decides, yeah, I'm leaving the country. I'm going to go live in Monaco. So that's what I got for news offering. It's a wild week in New York for Mike Tyson. Man, if I had a nickel for every time I moved to Monaco. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's throw it down to Mike Henneberger for the ruling on the news round. Oh, man. This one's a little easier for me, I think. Um, I've got more. Yeah, I just I, I need to start seeing the weekly therapist instead of monthly because I got triggered on that Sega Saturn thing. <laughs> um, I, I grew up super poor and never had... Uh, I think we had, a, we had a Nintendo and eventually got a Super Nintendo, but not like when it came out. Um, but I had a rich cousin who had every game system when it came out, including the Sega Saturn. Um, and he wasn't always like, like, we didn't always get to like play with it. Um, if he was playing with it. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that triggered me, man. Sorry. Can't go with Sega Saturn. <laughs> well, um, that's good. Cause I shit all over the Sega Saturn. <laughs> yeah, it's true. more of a story for the Sony PlayStation. Yeah. Um, and the same thing for same thing for Bentleys, man. Um, he never let me drive his Bentley. Um, no, but uh, you know, s- solving campaign finance reform, you know, just like Mandela solved racism. That's right. <laughs> See, I gotta I gotta go with that one. All right. Oh wow! Love it. All right, Drew. That means you run away with this game, picking up another two points. Love it. Good lord! Up. Was that five points? What do you a, have? That was a beatdown. This is, a, I think, this is a record for me, actually. So, oh, Mike, wow. thank you, sir. <laughs> sure. Good lord! Good job. <laughs> That's because Mike tried to keep it interesting in round three. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for coming on. Tell everybody like where they can find the book and like everything about it. Oh yeah, well thanks for having me, man. This is a lot of fun. I've I've enjoyed listening, and I'm glad I got to. I'm glad. Steph brought this up, so thanks to her too for introducing yeah, it was, us. It was a weird thing, and she threw out a name. I was like, "Yeah, we like getting like different people on. It's it's cool getting different perspectives." And 
you know, I got to listen to the book and I love the book. So well, yeah, and I mean, as as you can tell from the book too, it's there's no shortage of pop culture references in it. So I'm, I mean, any useful information I once had has been replaced by pop culture knowledge. So, um, <laughs> and I mean, that's you know one of the reasons I love what are listening now. Maybe I'll watch too on YouTube, but. uh um, I love, I love learning about pop culture from people who actually, you know, care about it and get excited about it, um, and do research about it. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully I can come back sometime. Um, oh, but, sure, uh, dude. yeah, I mean, if people want to look for the book, um, rock bottom at the Renaissance, rockbottombook.com, you can find links to buy it wherever. Um, there's paperbacks on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, eBooks, anywhere you can get an eBook. Um, and the audiobook is only on Audible and Apple Books. Um, so I wish there was a way that I could put, like, just the audiobook format out. Like, you have, like, you, you just can't put it out as, like, MP3s, you know, and have people just listen to it that way. Um, and get the, like, same, you know, like, where it'll save your spot, like, in an audiobook. Um, so, um, yeah, if, if I could do that, I would just pass it out to people. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's on Audible and, um, Apple Books. And like I said, 50% of the, um, royalties on all of that since, since the book came out in June. And as long as it will be out, um, I'll be donating that to mental health charities. And, um, as of now, also artist and, uh, tour crew, um, relief funds since those folks have been out of work for a year um right. and it's one of the last industries to get saved um so yeah i mean it's helping people out too um but yeah that's that's about it if you if you go to rockbottombook.com too uh you'll find like videos you know i've done i started a video series called rock bottom book club where i um interviewed aj perdomo from the band the dangerous summer about the book I've done interviews with Tyler Posey about the book. Um, and so it's kind of a video series. Um, and I have a podcast called, um, my production company is called Burger Media. It's a burger joint, um, on all social media, but you can find the a burger joint podcast where I put all those interviews and my interviews with bands and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you can find me on social media, Mikey Lee Rock everywhere or a burger joint. Dude, I can't believe that nobody's done what you did. And now I think it's going to become a thing. I mean, like where I've... people have the playlists and do the stories with it. Oh, yeah. Well, now Spotify it's... offers that as a feature that you can do that for podcasting by inserting oh, really? songs in a playlist. And they they do that now. Like, you know how the Spotify makes for you the like those year end playlists? One yep. of the ones that they made for me this year was like, a bunch of my favorite songs and then people giving the backstory behind it all in a playlist. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, they, they Spotify's done that a lot with like the commentary for, for albums. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like if, if you're someone who prefers like a physical book, the paperback copy has QR codes in front so you can download a playlist on Apple music or Spotify with every song that's mentioned in the book, not just the ones that, that are chapter songs because I mean, a lot of people might listen to it who, you know, see emo in the subtitle or see pop punk bands that they know or punk bands that they know in the book. But then I also mentioned like 
Dion and the Belmonts, or I also mentioned yep. Conway Twitty, you know? Um, and so I've been told by a lot of people that they've, you know, discovered new artists from it, which I love because I've worked in music journalism for over a decade. And, you know, that's been a big motivation in my life is just introducing people to music. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I unfortunately don't think enough people have listened to it or bought it to, for it to be an idea that catches on. Uh, hopefully that'll change soon. Um, and people just need to like once they do, man, it's, it's not so much like you guys are talking about like the commentary and everything else. It's your, it's your perspective of these songs and how they felt to you. And that changes from person to person. Yeah. But I think at the same time, people will relate with a lot of the stuff that you say in that. Yeah. And you know, what I tell people too, is that like, it's, it's not a unique story. You know, it's, it's a depressed guy, you know, dealing with heartbreak. The way I tell the story is unique, but people tell me all the time how much they related to it because it's, it's not unique. Well, not it's everybody, everybody's, lost, yeah. everybody I think has dealt with heartbreak, you know, like even Slash from what we learned today. Um, <laughs> at, the, at the ripe young age of nine. Yeah. That just so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, I mean, definitely a story that people will relate to and it's, and it's even if, like, even if you don't good, good. Cause it's a, it's a, the experience I went through and it sucks. So good if you can't relate to it, but it's still a, a fun ride because of like the music in it and the way that it pops up throughout the story. Right. And it, like, there's a lot of things like when you're talking about um, staying up all night and having your head just, you know, all these thoughts and you can't go to sleep. Like, I think even get away from the darker stuff, like even the lighter stuff, you listen to it. And I think a lot of people will be like, oh, shit, that happens to me like all the time. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not the only one this happens to. Like, I can't shut this thing off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's and there's a there's something I like that never really comes up in conversations about it is kind of. The, the the whole thing that kind of motivated the story was my um my my like being brainwashed by pop culture about the romanticism of New York City. You know, that's that's kind of what is the foundation of that book. It's why I'm so depressed and it's why I'm I'm so let down by what I expected I to find when I moved to New York. Um and it's all because of movies and music and books um that gave me this idea of what New York was supposed to be. Um, Did you watch Death Wish at all? or <laughs> <laughs> you, probably, you probably should have started. A little that. before my time. But I, I mean, I've still <laughs> seen it. But uh, yeah, um, it was it was a new New York um, <laughs> when I moved here. But, uh, but yeah, and so I think that's something also that people can like relate to is the pop culture side of it. You know, I, I referenced the... Um, Ted Mosby, you know, side of of my personality, and um, you know, say anything with John Cusack, and just being this, you know, optimist and hopeless romantic, and and I mean, I think a lot of us who I feel like people who you know listen to this show who are interested in pop culture have that connection to it. We let it, you know, influence the way we think about things, and and this book is very much about like how that can go wrong, I guess. Kind of like a manufactured yeah. expectation, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's done really well. Thanks, it's man. It's done super well. Like if, um, if you have an audible account, 
just go on there and get it. Use one of your credits or I don't know. I've had an Audible account for so long. I don't even know if you can buy stuff on there. Just use, yeah. buy, use a credit, whatever. It's worth it. You know what? It's, and if, It's a great book. And if you don't have an Audible account, if you go to rockbottombook.com, um, the link, I one of the links I have on there is for first time Audible users to get a 30 day free trial and you get a free credit with that free trial that you can use on my book. And cancel it after you hear it. I don't care. You know, and if you want to screw with Bezos, that's it. Yeah. Just go use special code Vagisil for <laughs> 30 days. For an extra 5%, uh, use the code Dick Paul. Yeah, I mean, you're already going to Amazon to buy your Vagisil. So get <laughs> while you're there. You know this is going to backfire on all of us. <laughs> yeah, we're, all gonna we're all just going to get the ads. <laughs> Throw it in the cart, man. But, uh, um, no, so you can, like, you can cancel your Audible account after, before the 30 day trial and you won't pay anything. You can just use your credit to listen to my book. Like, that's, like I said, I, all I care is that people hear it because I think it is that good, you know, um, from, you know, everybody that contributed to make it that good. Um, and I think that's gonna turn into this becoming a TV show or this, you know, you know, them telling their friends who are going to buy the copies, whatever. I don't care. I just want people to hear it because I worked so fucking hard on it, man. <laughs> um, it's definitely the, I've never worked harder on anything in my life. Um, and I've never been more proud of anything. And I mean, okay, so maybe my daughter, but, uh, I didn't have to work hard <laughs> for her, but I am proud so far with her. I mean, she's, she's so advanced. Like she's, she's grabbing the bottle already. It's, um, she gets that from me, um, but uh, <laughs> she no. So I, I'm excited about her, of course. But uh, but yeah, I worked really hard on this thing, so I just want people to hear it. And one of the cool things I I can't remember if I heard you say this or you said it in the book. Like you put the book down for a while, right? Like you. you oh yeah. Part of it, like stepped away. Yeah, I mean, back. I started it in 2011, um, and so it's it's a memoir of kind of like my first like four years in New York. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there was a period of like four or five years that I, you know, set it aside because I was still dealing with, um, that depression and that anxiety. And I didn't want to put it out and have people see who I really was, you know? So that's why I said earlier that like, it took me getting mentally healthier to me doing the work of that, of, you know, finding the right meds, talking to the therapist, meditating, making it important to me to fix that or to, you know, learn how to manage it. Um, and that's the only reason it's out. It, I hid it for so long because I was still that person and I didn't want people to know. Um, but now I, you know, I'm not anymore. So. There's also that stigma too, right? You know, it's, it's, I feel like it's gotten a little bit better regarding mental health. I feel like this past year in particular, I think it has kind of shown a light on things. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, it, it's awesome that you're talking about it because um, I feel like this is a topic I can also talk about for hours on end. It's sooner rather than later, you know, getting people help and, you know, just kind of like normalizing that conversation uh, will be an actual thing. So, yeah. And I mean, that's that's another reason I put it out, because yeah. like there are there are plenty of things in that book that. I could be ashamed of or I could be embarrassed by and 
but at this point, I just feel so good about how far I've come from that that I'm not embarrassed by it anymore. And like, I had to deal with the possibility of like my family reading it and my, you know, my in-laws reading it, who I, you know, consider some of like, I consider them closer to me than a lot of my own family. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I'm, yeah, like my wife's family reading that book was scary <laughs> to me and i don't know if they have or not but they're like in the other room right now um but uh, um, but, uh yeah because of the baby Magisil. <laughs> um but uh but i mean i wanted people who are at that because like i there's like three or f- i mentioned like three or four different stories in the book where i almost died from not yeah. purposeful suicide but like being reckless with drugs and alcohol because I didn't care. Um, Dude, that chapter, by the way, that was the worst nice night of sleep I had. Oh, like the, sorry. There was, I, I can't remember. It was like uh, the third or fourth one. Yeah. Where it gets, it's really dark. And I was like, and I, I have like these headphone things. It's like an eye wrap that I wear. Oh, yeah. And my wife was tossing and turning. And I'm like, fuck, can she hear this? She's probably like, fuck you. Because that's a dark chapter. Because you yeah. go, you really dig deep there. If I were a better writer, I would have put those like chapter two is like <laughs> uh, the Chelsea Hotel chapter, um, which is like a prostitute experience. And um, the chapter three is like a in case of suicide note is what I call it because I thought I was going right, to die yeah. that night. And so it's practically like letter to my family and all that stuff. So it gets really dark. And I, I, I'm always afraid that people are going to stop there and not because it like doesn't get better, but it gets less dark after that. Um, yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, I, I'm kind of always afraid that people won't get past the, that part. Um, but yeah, no, that's the thing is that like, I, I wanted people to know that like, it doesn't matter what kind of stupid shit you did or how bad you fucked up, like you can get past it and you can't let that destroy you because it will kill you literally if you let it. Um, and it almost killed me a couple times and thank God it didn't. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I just wanted people to, to, you know, those who need to hear that um to be able to hear that dude thanks we could probably talk about this forever but yeah. it's uh well, I, and it's mental health awareness so month right now that. too so it's yeah it's a good so time to, good time to talk about and it I, you were in the military too i don't want to poo-poo it too much like you were in the military i was in the marine corps so oh, okay like, i know you know you probably know a lot of people too that go through a lot of mental health things just from that yeah. And I, it doesn't really translate because it's not the same thing, but I think even those guys would still enjoy it. Like, you know, it's, or still get something out of it. Oh yeah. You know, I actually got, I actually got a message yesterday from, uh, this. So when I was in the army, I, w- I was a, uh, combat documentarian, which is like combat camera photography, video and stuff. And I never got deployed before I, I got out on medically discharged before I got deployed. Um, but you go to training, you go to like army or like military film school, um, with people from different branches. And there was this, there was this girl in who wasn't, or yeah, was a Marine. Um, she's out now. I don't know. Are you guys always Marines? <laughs> um, so she, apparently, uh, but, uh, 
Um, yeah, I had a huge crush on her then, but, uh, she messaged me yesterday and we stayed friends on Facebook, um, that she heard the audiobook and she was telling me how, how much she loved it. Cause she's like going to school now, um, and either just got her master's or she's, she's going to like work with, um, in psychology. Um, but she, she was a Marine, um, and she, you know, has dealt with that stuff and has known plenty of people who've dealt with that stuff. And, um, and yeah, there's, I mean, Aside from what we all know about the military and PTSD and people coming back from combat with PTSD, there's a huge um, percentage of suicides and suicide attempts in the military from people who've never been deployed. Um, the Department of Defense puts out a, a suicide event report every year. So the fact that they have to do that like says a lot about suicide in the military. Um, but some of the stats that they have on that are whether or not these people have been deployed, whether or not they've seen combat when they were deployed. And I mean, I'm a, I would say, the, I mean, it's been a while since I looked at it, but there's just a, the percentage of people who have never been deployed who have attempted suicide would, it's, the last time I looked at it was at least like 30%. Um, yeah, that's insane. And, and that was the thing for me too. Like I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and anxiety disorder when I was in the army. And it was just from like, being treated shitty and like joining so I would feel a sense of purpose and then not feeling a sense of purpose, you know, because I didn't, I mean, I joined to get deployed and go, you know, do, you know, documentation and filming and stuff. And of course, I, I know that's not all I would be doing, but, uh, but then I just sat in the barracks in, in Maryland for nine months and cleaned floors and painted walls and, saw people almost kill themselves in front of me and had to clean their blood from carpets and mattresses. And, you know, so I, I dealt with my share of traumatic experiences right outside of Baltimore, you know? Um, right. so yeah, there's, there's a lot going on there too. See, this is why I think it's important to get like different guests that aren't all the same, but, you know, there's different stories to tell. And I think this, it hits everybody a different way. So, right. dude, again, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for Come having me. Come back whenever, man. Yeah. And, like, you're not that far away, dude. Oh, should, yeah. And I know you said in your book you hate people. Like, <laughs> again, I, that, I wrote that a can, long time ago. We can ago. hate them together. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again to Mike Hanneberger for being an excellent judge tonight. And congratulations to Drew Zachman for picking up the win. But unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. But don't worry, if you've missed an episode, you can always go over to DuelingDecades.com. That's your one-stop shop for everything for the show. The audio version of the show is there. The YouTube version of the show is there. You can also subscribe on your platform of choice. Now, you can find all the links to all of our social medias right in the episode notes from this episode. So until next time, duelers. We're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.